Well, good morning. I'm happy to be here. You know, it was just over a year ago that I walked through your doors. And I was telling Lina this morning that as I drove up to the church, I was filled with joy. And then walking in and being greeted by all these warm and lovely people that you are filled me with even more joy. So I'm really excited to be here at this point this morning. I appreciate you, Dave. Thank you, wherever you are, <laughs> for inviting me to preach to you this morning. This year, I am studying the book of John, the gospel according to John. And when Dave asked you to preach, I thought, well, it makes sense then to choose something that I'm studying since he's in between, you know, sermon series. So I chose John chapter 2, 1 through 11, the wedding at Cana. And the reason why is because the first seven signs which John presents in the first 12 chapters of John point to Jesus as who God, as revealing God's glory and it triggers belief. But before I jump into the sermon, I, I just want to share some interesting features from the first chapter of John. Because, you know, I've studied the Gospel of John at least three times, but this time, for whatever reason, this time I saw some interesting details, and I want to share those with you, and I think it will help you appreciate John's Gospel even more. John is one of four Gospels, which means good news in Greek. These are remarkably similar in that they tell the story of a prophetic teacher and healer who challenges the status quo of religious and political systems, which led to his trial and public execution. All contain the promise of God's glory over death and resurrection. They all share some particular narrative details also. For example, giving sight to the blind, restoring the ability to walk to those who are paralyzed, a miracle of bread and fish. And all four contain lengthy accounts of the trial and execution of Jesus. John, however, also differs from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These three gospels are synoptic in nature. In other words, they are in the same view of each other. But John has been known as the spiritual gospel and is different in many ways. John has always been recognized as the latest of the four gospels using very different techniques and style of writing and narratives that are only found in his gospel. John probably wrote his gospel more than 60 years after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. During this time, John lingered over all his experiences with Jesus as one of his disciples while being bathed in the Holy Spirit. And he states quite clearly that the community's ideas about Jesus changed after Jesus's lifetime and describes this development as the work of the Holy Spirit. The author of this gospel never identifies himself as John, 
but only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The tradition going back to the second century identifies the author of this gospel as John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples. John witnesses and testifies in his writing claiming the divine son of God, who truly became flesh. In other words, fully human. John presents the Christian belief that in Jesus, God entered into human history to save human beings by repairing the broken relationship with God. And not just for eternity, but in everyday life and circumstances. God became known as the enfleshed life of the word in the world. And that life is one of fullness and grace. This contrasts sharply with themes of sacrifice and emptying common in other New Testament writings. Flesh is where the action is, where the word or logos encounters and engages the world. Whatever other traditions it appropriates, this belief is central to the symbolism and mystery of this gospel. John stresses the divinity of Jesus, so much so that he presents Jesus as alien to this world. Such beliefs led to the conflict between the Christian community with the synagogue authorities, resulting in the community itself feeling alienated from the world. The influence from such traditions may have had a part in the development of this gospel and its distinctive traits. The Gospel of John opens with an 18 verse prologue and introduces all his major themes. One helpful image for these opening verses might be like the overture of a musical. The overture contains all the musical themes of the work that follows. And only as the musical piece unfolds can the audience recognize all the themes. John opens the gospel in the heavens before turning to earthly matters. This is a pattern he repeats throughout his gospel from heaven to earth and back to heaven again. It is like John is lifting the curtain to eternity past. In the very first verses of John chapter one, declaring, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is revealing Jesus as eternal, pre-existing with God. But more than that, he is expressing the intimacy between two distinct persons in an eternal relationship, separate but unified. John gives us the image of the perfect oneness of the relationship in the Godhead. It is as if there is a dance taking place in eternity past. 
Have you ever seen one of those ballroom dancing competitions where the two are so in sync with one another that they move in one accord? I wonder if the oneness is like that. John is affirming Jesus's deity before he tells us one thing Jesus said or did here on earth. In his pre-incarnate state, Jesus enjoyed unbroken, intimate fellowship with his Father. This is the image of God that humanity was created in to enjoy. It's an image of harmony, love, and perfect oneness. It's out of this perfect love that humanity was created. We are created by love, for love. Meister Eckhart was a German monk, and he says it a little bit differently. We are created from the laughter of the Trinity. Isn't that beautiful? Don't miss this. We were, you were, created to take part in the fellowship with God today forevermore. God created us for relationship. Beyond this, part of John's genius in writing is how rich in symbolism with subtle shades of meaning that it holds. For example, John uses the Greek word logos, which incorporates far more layers of meaning than can easily be captured in a single word. In ancient mythology, Lagos indicated the first cause, an intelligent, divine, but unknown power behind the universe. God's word from Judaism represents the dynamic power of God's will. God speaks and it is done. John's community needed to be reminded of this who Jesus was, is, and will always be. John's age and time is not unlike ours. We need to see, be reminded, and experience for ourselves the wonder, the wonder of who Jesus is and will always be. Another technique John employs often is using contrast to teach the truth of God's divine attributes. For example, in chapter one, John presents the contrast of light and darkness. God's light shines on all humankind and cannot be overcome by darkness. This describes the light of God's glory shining through Christ that overcomes darkness. The tense of this verb in Greek here describes a present continuous action of Jesus Christ, the word. And we see it every day as a new day breaks forth and darkness gives way to the light of morning. We go to bed nightly with the confidence that the sun will rise tomorrow. This is the promise of our creator. Other contrasts that John uses to point to the truth of God's divine attributes are God's love and human rejection. 
miraculous abundance and situational lack an offer of grace instead of judgment. I think at this point, this is enough background for John to help us interpret the subject of this sermon, the wedding of Cana, chapter two, verses one through 11. Listen to God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to me and to you? My hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the person in charge of the banquet. So they took it. When the person in charge tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, they called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Oh God, how incredible it is that you know and love us so intimately. Thank you, Jesus, that although you are fully God, you took on flesh you became human so that we could be in relationship with you thank you thank you that no matter how many times we have studied this book there is always more for us to learn so would you surprise us today would you surprise those who have studied this book by teaching them new things about yourself and engage those who have never studied John so that they may see and love you. Help us to understand in a new way today that you, Jesus, are both fully God and fully human. Holy Spirit, we ask that you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It was September of 2012, and we were getting busy preparing for a wedding. Our oldest daughter, Liz, and her fiance, Dexter, were busy with last-minute preparations for their wedding ceremony and I was busy with last minute preparations for the reception. 
Liz and I had overcome a difference <laughs> of what that reception might look like. I wanted Father of the Bride with chandeliers and white tablecloths. And Liz wanted a big fat Greek wedding style where everyone danced in the same room and we had a Mexican food truck. <laughs> but we compromised and it turned out to be truly wonderful. We did end up serving Mexican food, but we had it catered through some acquaintances who owned a catering business. Today, I would not bat my eye at a food truck. Who knew that they would become so popular? We were busy putting together the decorations and planning the amounts of food and wine and beer that might be enjoyed for the whole evening. At some point, someone in our family said, and I think it was our oldest son, Ken, hey, why don't we make sangria for the reception? Now, can you imagine taking that kind of risk doing that? I have to say, thinking about it now horrifies me because, you know, who knows, right? But I have to say, it is a memory that I will keep tucked in my heart forever because our family joined together and we sliced oranges and limes and lemons and we laughed the entire time. We had a ball. Now, how we even managed to understand the quantities that we needed, I have no idea. But I really understand the predicament of this scripture because the wine gave out. The narrative opens on the third day. Now, I had to stop right there when I first read this because in John chapter one, if you read straight through, John refers to chronological time. He says, the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. But here, John opens Jesus's ministry in chapter two with, on the third day, a break in his pattern. It's curious if you're reading continuously through this gospel. When I first read this scripture, it hit me afresh because what does the third day remind you of? reminds me of the resurrection. It was the morning of the third day that the tomb was found empty. Jesus had risen. The miracle of the resurrection had taken place. It could be an echo here of Easter, signaling John's community and us that something special is about to take place that the divine is going to break in to earthly concerns. Moving on then, this wedding takes place in Cana of Galilee. Where's Cana? <laughs> I don't know, I had to look it up. It turns out it's about 10 miles north of Nazareth. In chapter one, Nathaniel declares, what good comes out of Nazareth? probably indicating the remoteness. However, Nathaniel is from Cana, which is just as remote and out of the way. Who knows, but Cana is only mentioned here in John's gospel, in the New Testament, where he presents the first sign. 
and it never appears in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. From this time forward, however, Cana will be known as the place where the ordinary is transformed into the extraordinary. What a surprise. Scripture goes on to say, and the mother of Jesus was there. John doesn't use Mary's name here or in the rest of the gospel. When she is mentioned, she is always the mother of Jesus or woman. In verse 2, we find out, sort of by the way, that Jesus and the disciples were invited. Mary is the center stage at this moment, with Jesus and his disciples kind of off to the side. Moving on with the story, the wedding hits a critical point. Mary says to Jesus, when the wine has given out, they have no wine. This situation in Cana at the wedding had disaster written all over it. The ancient Palestinian weddings continued for a week, a week of celebration, dancing, and food. To run out of anything potentially meant shame or even a lawsuit for the family of the groom who was at the time responsible for the festivities. We are not sure here of Mary's relationship to the wedding party, but she took concern to solve the problem. Whether she was an extended family relation or close family lifetime friend, she employed her agency to remedy the situation. Now, while weddings vary widely across time and culture, I think we can all identify with the problem of running short of something critical at a celebration like a wedding. These images of social disaster, whether actual or imagined, evoke within us a strong, primal, human emotion of anxiety, shame, and compassion, leading us to ask, what can be done to alleviate this problem, this painful solution of human need? Just reading this narrative gave me anxiety, remembering, you know, we had made sangria for our daughter's wedding, and even though it turned out to be amazing and we had the right quantities, Again, what was I thinking? I don't know. But what is so stark about this scenario is the simplicity of Mary's statement to Jesus. They have no wine. That was it. No extended explanation, no excuses. She simply took her care and concern to Jesus, the God of compassion, mercy, and love for his people. Even over something so worldly as running out of wine at a wedding. So simple, yet so intentional. It is implied that Mary knew Jesus could do something about it. And of course, she would know who Jesus was. She knew the supernatural events surrounding his birth and the prophetic words of the angel Gabriel and of Simeon and Anna in the temple at Jesus's dedication. In short, she had a good reason to believe Jesus to be the Messiah. She also would have realized his public ministry was beginning 
with the extraordinary scene of his baptism and her nephew, John the Baptizer, declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, along with him choosing his first disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and supposedly John. <laughs> I would like to propose, though, that Mary was Jesus's first disciple. So Mary employed her faith and went to the one who has the authority and the power to do something about the wine running out and the ensuing shame that was befalling the groom's family. But what is startling is Jesus's response. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. The mother's adult son relationship is a common, even archetypal human theme that we necessarily bring into our interpretation of this text. So it's jarring and even disorienting to hear Jesus reply to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? This sounds unnecessarily rude. Why is he talking to his mother this way? Well, Gail Radcliffe O'Day, an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ who taught at Hamilton College and Eden Theological Seminary, notes that although these words sound harsh to the modern ear, they are neither rude nor hostile. However, they do create a distance between Jesus and his mother by downplaying their familial relation. It is a formula of disengagement, not rudeness. The point here is that Jesus must be guided by his inner calling from God and not by any human claim or authority, not even his mother's. Jesus explains, my hour has not yet come, indicating that there is a plan unfolding and that Jesus is fully aware of his time and mission here on earth. In John, Jesus will reference his hour, the hour of his crucifixion, many more times. There is, however, another hint that goes back to Genesis and creation, as in John chapter 1. The word woman here in Greek is the same word used for woman in Genesis in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint at the creation of Eve. John uses Mary here as a surprising symbol of intercessory power with her son and the impropriety of having anyone have a claim on him except the father, including his mother. This does not stop Mary. <laughs> she continues to employ her faith and trust, turning to the servant saying, do whatever he tells you. Again, simple and direct. Could this be a model of prayer? Yes, we know there's a plan that is unfolding in the heavens, but we live here on earth. 
And in this story of the wedding of Cana, we have the contrast of lacking or not enough versus abundance. John shows heaven breaking into earth here with Jesus bending time and creating the best wine out of water. And not just a few jugs, but an abundance of 120 to 180 gallons of the finest wine. A miracle, to say the least, but more accurately, the glory of God breaking in to an earthly situation with his divine attributes of mercy, compassion, and grace. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar and Pauline theologian, describes the glory of God as having to do both with the authority of God over the world and with the extraordinary radiance of God's presence within the world, and then dangerously and strangely with human beings who are called to stand at the intersection of heaven and earth. This is Jesus being revealed as God and Mary standing in the gap of scarcity over a very earthly event of a nondescript common everyday wedding in an obscure place called Cana. So the question at hand is, how do we handle our everyday needs and experience of lacking? Do we grumble? Sometimes. Do we take it out on our spouse? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> our kids, our roommate, our dog. Why is it we don't go to Jesus with anticipation and expectation like Mary? as our first source of abundant life and our only reliable source for the very best. After all, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is our shepherd. So what happens when we bring our nondescript common, everyday lack of resources, whether it be financial, emotional, or physical, to Jesus in prayer? Does he say to us, what does that have to do with me? Or does he in some way respond to our request? I think Jesus here is encouraging Mary's agency with the creator of the universe. Jesus is encouraging her to act in faith. The book of Hebrews chapter seven reminds us that Jesus is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. With Jesus for us, who can be against us? I think the message here is that we too need to act in agency for ourselves and others bringing the cares, the lack to Jesus, releasing it into his care. Mary didn't tell him what to do. She didn't even tell him how to do it. She plainly stated to the servants, fully expecting he would act 
Do whatever he tells you to do, trusting that he would do what was best. Without further explanation, the narrative sharply turns to six stone water jugs, and we are told they are for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, and they are empty. According to a commentary I read, these are not just simple stone jars, these are symbols that point to the emptiness of the religious tradition. There are only six jars one short of the sacred number seven. And in the Jewish tradition, the number seven is a number of completion, like in the seven days of creation. John is pointing here to the incompletion of religious practices. Symbolism is everywhere, and here John seems to be concerned with the implications of the purification requirement for the dusty hands and feet of travelers who are ritual observants namely the water of one epoch and age, as in this narrative, must be replaced by the wine of a new age, inaugurated by Jesus's words and deeds, the kingdom of God breaking in. Jesus surprisingly turns to the servants and says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim, indicating they were overflowing. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they did as Jesus had requested. Jesus had filled them with eschatological wine, a rich symbol in biblical tradition, inferring prosperity, abundance, and good times. The wine will overflow the water jars changing the jars of water into jars flowing over with good wine will become a metaphor for Jesus's ministry as he brings life to the ancient religion. John is preparing his audience for the wonder of the origins of living water, which Jesus will promise the Samaritan woman and us all a few chapters later. In our story of the wedding at Cana, John is using the contrast of lacking and not enough with abundance versus abundance to reveal a particular truth about Jesus. John is teaching that in our human life, we lack, but in God's economy, there is abundance. The first verse of Psalm 23 points us in this direction. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. And Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his own and his own know him. If we allow Jesus to lead us our shepherd, the promise of the psalmist is we will not lack. Do you follow Jesus? If not, who do you follow? What kind of promises do they make? We all follow something or someone. At the wedding in Cana, there was no wine. The wine ran out. This is an everyday occurrence for us and all people 
today around the world. Resources are scarce and they're getting more scarce. It's a problem in every part of our world. We ask ourselves, does God care? As Dave showed us in his sermons on Habakkuk, we can boldly say to God, how long? How long do we need to suffer before you intervene, God? But what Dave also showed us was how Habakkuk boldly stood in faith on the watchtower, praying and watching for God to come and intervene, employing his faith. Where are you experiencing a lack or a need in your life? Is it your finances, your job, your energy? Maybe it's your time. This is a human condition. It is an earthly care, and we are destined to lack and to be in need. You know, we don't know whether Mary grasped the gravity of what she would have to live through in following her son as the Messiah. But in the end, she walked every step of her son's mission right to the foot of the cross and knowing what he was capable of doing. Her dark valley, as the psalmist said, was watching her son die on the cross in one of the cruelest forms of punishment the world would ever see. But on the third day, all of that changed. Jesus rose from the grave, and we are reminded that peace and joy is not an absence of troubles. It is the presence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. This then is the first reported sign, and John seems intentional in its placement. John's aim in writing his gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there are many more miracles in John's gospel. In fact, at the end of his gospel, he says, there are so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John, however, only conveys seven of them as signs where Jesus reveals his glory. The difference and importance of these signs is in Jesus manifesting his glory in these miracles, leading his fresh new disciples to believe in him as the Messiah. In contrast, the pinnacle sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead also led to Jesus's trial, crucifixion, and death. John testifies to Jesus's glory to the truth he had embraced and grace entered into his very soul. John experienced endless streams of undeserved grace into his life. Grace upon grace upon grace, he calls it in chapter one. This is who God is. It is God's nature. It is part of God's divine attribute 
God delights to show us this grace and favor. What happens when we are graced with God's favor as in the story of Cana? The miracle of grace brings abundant life. And when that happens, it changes us forever. Just like the disciples that were with Jesus at Cana. They believed and they were changed forever. John himself was changed forever and witnessed God's very glory in the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus uniquely revealed and expressed his father's glory, the fullness, the fullness of the divine nature of grace and truth. As Christians, as followers of Christ, as the people of God, we must continually remind ourselves and each other who God is, especially when we see each other walking through a dark valley. We can remind each other that God is good, completely good, regardless of what the circumstances look like, that God knows best, that God's love will prevail, and that God is in control, omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent. What it doesn't mean is that we get to dictate how things are done, but we are promised the outcome that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We are to trust God in the person of Jesus Christ as the kind, good, compassionate, loving, grace-filled shepherd and God who passionately loves his children that were planned and foreknown before one came into existence. How can you know God today? Look at Jesus, the son, fully God, but fully human. For he came to earth to reveal what the triune God is really like. Jesus perfectly demonstrated God's character and heart, authority and power, because he was, is, and always will be God's beloved son. Jesus demonstrated God's compassion for broken and needy people. Mary demonstrated what it means to be a disciple. That is to stand in the gap for others in prayer and presence. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says it well. Jesus loved people in ways that changed them forever. Let's trust Jesus. He will change us forever. Let's pray. Joyous and abundant God of light. We confess our aching hearts that seeks out love in the wrong places and dead ends. Remind us today of the primary purpose of life, to be in relationship with you, glorify you, and enjoy you forever. You make that easy because you have replaced tired religion with gospel joy. You are the Lord of the celebration. Amen. Amen.